Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's show is an opportunity to hear directly from a well-known Canadian parenting expert. Alison Schaefer is a family therapist who has penned three best-selling books, Breaking the Good Mom Myth, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, and Ain't Misbehavin'. In this episode, Alison describes the impact of the pandemic on the well-being of children and provides us with suggested approaches that can be used in our classrooms. Hello, Allison. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today. Jennifer, thank you so much for inviting me on. Great to speak with you again, too. Allison, last time you joined one of our Knowledge Hook roundtables, and I had so much feedback afterwards. Educators talking about how helpful it was to hear from parenting experts the kinds of advice that they're giving to parents. And so this is great to be able to continue on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Important conversations for sure. Thank you for the valuable resources that you provide. They are important conversations, and some of the educators that are listening to this might not know your background, and it's really rich. You're a clinical family therapist. You've written a number of books. Tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing. So, yes. So, I do have a strange background in that I'm the third generation in my family to be trained as an Adlerian parent educator. So, our training is in the work of the philosophy and psychology of Alfred Adler, who, again, very low name recognition, but very high influence. He was a colleague of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung's. So those three men were really responsible for bringing psychology into its kind of more modern formation. And Adler was really interested in children and upbringing, which was different from Freud and Carl Jung. And he worked with the school systems. Every school in Vienna had a clinical child guidance office. And it is reported that he brought child incarcerations down to zero, that really he really got rid of juvenile delinquents in Vienna with his philosophy. So so he has this very robust writings about that. And so my parents got involved, my grandparents got involved, they helped open up the Adler School here in Toronto, which is where I got my master's degree. And I went on to start a few nursery schools. So I come from a family of educators, my mom was a teacher, my dad worked at the university, I opened up nursery schools, I've worked in nursery schools. So I yes, I write and I do media work and I started the podcast when the pandemic broke out and I've spoken around the world. It's been just amazing to see what family life looks like in Bulgaria and Uruguay and Switzerland. And I'm very honored to have the career that I have. And, and I have two beautiful daughters. There's the real criteria. <laughs> I actually had to raise a few of my own too. Allison, it's really interesting to hear that your background is the complete intersect between education, schooling, and families and parenting. And that link is so critical. And, you know, you've written a few good books. I I love the names of your books, Ain't Misbehaving, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids. I mean, I think as a mom, 
of two myself and uh, many of us that are educators are parents as well. And we play those dual roles. And the fact that you've come from it from both those aspects are really helpful. Yes. And, you know, even when people take my class and to your point, I do have a lot of teachers that take my program. And we do have particular curriculum just for teachers as well, because, of course, working with a group of 28 or 32 kids is different than working with just two of your own or whatever. But people will often go away saying, gosh, you know, I came to this class because I wanted to learn about parenting, but you've taught me things that I'm going to do in the workplace. And whether that's the classroom workplace or whether that's in a corporate setting, team building setting, whatever, it really is information about how to get along with your fellow human. And you would think, why don't we know how to get along with one another? And yet this is the fundamental question that dogs all of humanity, you know, troubles in families and classrooms and in our workplace, but troubles between cultures, between races, between countries. It's still something that we have to get better at and we don't get much formal training in it, sadly. I think that's so helpful, Allison. And when you think of the big global situation, I mean, at any point in time, you look around the globe and you see the terrible things that are happening and it's built on you know, some of those problems are relationship problems. And so if we can get right down to those three and four-year-olds that are coming into our schools and have environments in our schools right up to 18-year-olds where that's a focus, how do we build relationships and understanding and acceptance and between students, between students and their teachers, between teachers and their administrators, it's about relationships. And that's what I really like about the advice that you give is that you really go deeply into that. Yeah. And, you know, obviously home and your nuclear family, your primary attachments are very formative. We, you know, we, we know this now, uh, those early years. But think about the first community outside of a child's nuclear home is their school environment. And teachers represent authority and the relationship that children will have with authority for the rest of their lives are forged in those early school years. Their feeling of being in community and having peer relationships, friendships, non-biological roots, that happens in the context of our classrooms. So we have this blueprint that is going to really impact our, how our kids fare out in the world. And so if we can spend, yes, we need the three R's on our curriculum piece, no doubt about it. But it's also about how we are going to interact with the larger community that we take forward. And, and to your point, if we get kids that learn how to get along, learn how to problem solve, then those people graduate and they become the leaders. So there's an intergenerational piece that allows us to move towards the beacon of social equality and cooperation and harmony in the world by getting these good leaders ready and out in the world. You know, we need more of the Greta Thunbergs. <laughs> Absolutely. Alison, it's interesting how you phrase that. And that's exactly why educators, we need to hear people from outside of our direct sector, because you describe that as the school or the classroom being the first time that children are in a formal community that is with people that are not related to themselves. And, you know, to be honest, I don't really think I've ever thought of it like that. And that's why when we hear things through lenses from people that are outside of our direct sector, it really helps us process really how important the kinds of skills that we're building in kids that, like you say, reading, writing, and mathematics, the academic skills are very important, but those social emotional skills, the sense of identity, the sense of how they interact with others in a collective, that's really important for them as well. Interestingly, I just got forwarded a documentary from the National Film Board of Canada on my high school. 
And I, <laughs> and it was filmed while I was in grade 10. And I knew almost everybody in this documentary. But it was a pretty progressive high school in terms of having co-op programs and trying to contextualize learning. But it was, all, it was a lot about the social piece. And one of the students back then, and it's just as true today with the teens that I'm talking to in my clinical practice during the pandemic and how we kind of broke all these relationships when school fell apart, kids' mental health fell apart. You want to talk about how important you guys are to kids. You know, the proof is in this pandemic. You house the environment for them to be mentally well by being together. They need that community. But in this documentary, one of the teens says something to the fact of like, you know, it's fine that I can learn how to do a chemistry equation or solve a quadratic equation. And he said, but I need somewhere to go to learn what to do if, you know, if my, he uses the example of rape, actually it's kind of weird, but, um, you know, if my girlfriend gets raped, I mean, how do I handle that? Or he was trying to give these dramatic, like, life is hard. Like you get, and teens will tell you this, like teens get into terrible situations, social situations, and they need a lot of help around that. And they don't have the prefrontal cortex thinking skills and they need that support and they need help and they often don't want to go to their parents. And often it's teachers, coaches, the choir director, like those other important adults in their lives. Well, they will find that sort of mentor, companion, school counselor to open up and talk about. And if we could incorporate, you know, more of those positive adult-child relationships outside the family and more curriculum that's based on some of these life problem-solving skills, that would just be amazing. I think that's a positive thing that I've certainly observed over the last number of years, Allison, is that in the education world, there is so much more talk about the link between learning and well-being and really focused energy on thinking about children well-being, thinking about the well-being of the adults that are in the buildings with them so that they can be modeling and supporting students. And I think that's a step in the right direction. And of course, as soon as we turned more to that lens of well-being, we started looking outside our sector and looked at health professionals and mental health professionals and family therapists and parenting experts and all the people that have been working in parallel with us. And there's a real opportunity to have greater links and make sure that we're really doing what we need to be doing in those schools that, like you said, are really important places. Before I went into this career, like I said, I was raised with this Adlerian tradition, but I actually worked in nonprofits when I graduated from university with my science degree. And it wasn't until I became a mother that I formally went back to school and got all the counseling and the parent education piece. But when I was working in nonprofits, I had this wonderful opportunity to work for the MS Society. And they had this reading program where they would send out people to give these. I remember it. Had it in my school when I was an elementary principal. So there you go. So I was one of those coordinators and I got to go to about 300 schools across the province of Ontario with that program and put on these assemblies. And if you are just a, a person, I, at this time I had no education formally about schools and classrooms and things, but I'll just tell you as somebody who got to walk into 300 schools, not as a parent, not as a child, that you can tell the culture of a school within the first three minutes just walking in the front door and going to the office, the way the students talk to you, the way someone says, can I help you? The way the, the office secretary addresses you. It's just was so eye-opening to me. And I really believe that this came from the leadership at the top, these principals that would have like breakfast meetings with the staff and this collegiality family feeling amongst the principals and the administrators and the teachers. And it just such a beautiful thing to see 
when it's present and so sad to see in other environments when it's missing because it feels like such a missed opportunity. You know, when you know it's possible. Yeah, that was a fascinating time in my life. And that's exactly why there's so many resources, because we're trying to make sure that every school feels like that. And every school has, regardless of the jurisdiction, they all have their own context. The families and the kids in each one of our schools are different, but there's some common practices. And that's why we reach out to you and others like you to help us set the stage of what that's supposed to be looking like. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic, because you made some comments earlier about If anything, everything is magnified as far as the challenges of kids when they don't have that place to go to school. And we know the audience for these podcasts is global and there's been disruption right around the world. And so what are you from a parenting expert, from a family therapist, what are you seeing with children now? And, you know, whether it's five-year-olds or 17-year-olds, what are you seeing? Well, to your point, there does seem to be a difference based on age. You know, if we're going to do the extremes... I think the developmental piece for asking a kindergarten student to sit still in front of a monitor to do online kindergarten for hours is just a ridiculous ask. (laughs) So I felt, first of all, for the teachers, I know there's a lot of teachers listening, like you are my hero. You had no training in this. You love your job. You love helping kids. You had to do it with both arms tied behind your back. I had teachers in my practice that had to do online learning and homeschooling. I had a principal or a teacher that had five children and they're trying to teach their class and, and do their... I mean, you you had no time, no prep. And then of course, because the cameras are on, suddenly you got all these parents visiting your classroom, Zoom bombing you. And and you're like, this doesn't represent how, how I teach. Like, come to my real classroom. I, I just felt... Anyways, I think the teachers did an amazing job as best they could. So many parents have said, you know, I need to really up the end of the year school gift because this was an exceptional year and a Starbucks card is not going to show my appreciation for how amazing my kid's teacher was. But so I think for the youngest kids, we know even just looking at some of the early data that's come in that they managed somehow to keep their marks up or kind of stumble along uh, the the younger ones. But the older ones, then they did, most of them didn't like it miss their friends, but they sort of endured. But as it starts to go into the later grades, there were some kids who just thrived. They said, I like sleeping in. I like being in my pajamas. I don't like to get up early for the bus. I just get a learning package. I can hand it in whenever I want. And they kind of like that autonomy and just kind of got the bare bones done. So some people did do okay that way. But for the lion's share, they really were kind of, I guess, old enough to have enough of an opinion to sort of say, this is bogus. I'm not participating. And so there was a lot of school refusal or just basically deciding to just drop out, not do the work. And so I think they've said that there was a 30% drop overall in marks of the pandemic cohort over the year before. So there is going to have to be a a catching up period. That's going to be an interesting ask. But my biggest hope, the thing that I tried to protect was I really wanted kids to know this does not mark your concept as a learner. Don't let this be the defining year that you think you're stupid or not smart or can't do it or whatever and have that impact your future engagement. This is an anomaly. You have a long academic career. Let's hope everyone is loves learning, is a lifelong learner, you know, above and beyond just our K-12 curriculum here in Canada and get those people re-engaged again, as opposed to making this a defining moment where they say, I'm not made of the right stuff. That would be a heartbreaking conclusion. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking as you're talking, 
We had e-learning courses long before the pandemic, and we had watched the type of high school students that were successful in those. And typically they were students that were self-motivated, that liked the autonomy, they liked the flexibility, they liked the ability to kind of work on the courses when they felt that that best matched their time. So they wanted a different type of a schedule. And those students did quite well. And I think that that's probably typical going through with this pandemic when everyone had to move online. There were kids, like you said, that thrived in that environment. They liked it, et cetera. I often advised parents when kids were disengaging, I said, you have to appreciate a lot of these teachers had to move this curriculum online in like two seconds and they have no training in this. There's other ways. There are other online programs because in-person is just not an option. There's other programs that have been around for years where these people have had a chance to have feedback. They've had time to develop the, the curriculum. They figured out timing and pacing. Like you don't have to go necessarily to the classroom that you're child is in, if that format's not working, go find something that has a longer history so that they really develop something that they know works. I think, as you said, the teachers did an incredible job of, to use the coin phrase now, pivoting. You know, they pivoted instantly and they did a magnificent job. I think what's different this time is that that pandemic, the disruption in learning took place over such a long period of time. And so we had so many students. It was different when, you know, we'd have a student that would be in school and they'd be taking one e-learning course. But we've had entire cohorts that that's all they're doing is virtual learning. And they don't have that grounding place back at the school. And they're missing that social interaction. And of course, it's not just they're not getting the social interaction at school, but there were shutdowns worldwide in different places. They played out differently, but children weren't allowed to go out and be playing in the same ways or attending their extracurricular activities. So it was a whole shutdown of their social world. And, you know, I think we're going to have to be very conscious of that. And, you know, we've got lots of schools that have gone back into place now and really thinking about how do we nurture that social interaction because kids have been away from that for a little while. They're rusty. They're worried that um, they have sort of a paranoia. Is my friend group still going to be my friend group? Did people fracture off and pair up with other people? You know, what's it going to be like? There's a, there's a bit of trepidation. It's going to take some time. I don't think they're so worried about being together from a um, infectious point of view, literally just wondering about the social dynamics and where they belong, where they're significant, where they fit back in. It's like Humpty Dumpty. We got to put the puzzle pieces all back together again. And uh, then they're not so confident about what that's going to look like. And I think the other thing to remember that got highlighted in terms of how mental health issues cropped up with the lockdown and the absence of kids being able to be together and in school together. If you live life through the eyes of a child, everything in society and in family tells you that we come from a culture that values education. And kids can get the mistaken idea that I'm only as good as my academic performance. And, you know, we forget that back in the day, kids worked on the farm, you know, they were important because they milked the cows and they were part of the family business and they were part of the machinery that made the whole family operate. And now we say kids, you know, you don't need to do chores. You don't have to walk the dog. We, you know, we've got all the, we outsource all these services. Just be smart. And this message that only the cream that rises to the crop is going to get the jobs and the scarcity mentality that when you start seeing kids fall behind and they're not functioning at school and the marks aren't coming in, they really feel like it's a collapse of life. They can't keep perspective, you know? 
And so I think we need to, to your point about, we need to get the sports going again. We need kids to be helping out around the house. We need them to be babysitting so that they can bring value to a little four-year-old who's learning to read and say, you know, I'm kind of a great person. I've got other things I can contribute and get all those pieces working at the same place. Because when we say it's just school and school's not working, then they're just walking this very thin tightrope. And we now know that the stress of education, the stressors of achieving academically is one of the number one stressors for our youth. And, um, you know, we, you know, we, we, again, not, we want it as a goal. We want it as a value, but it shouldn't be crushing. Yes. That should be one piece of the puzzle. And really when we think of education, we need to be thinking more broadly. We need to be thinking about learning. Yes. Because there's so many ways of learning. There's so many venues to be learning and there's, so many ways for students. We have to ensure that students have lots of ways of demonstrating their learning. And that will bring them into the fold and let them see their self-worth as well, right? Yeah. And actually, you know, one of the things that happened in the pandemic too, is that we had to go back and like, we had to remember hobbies. You know, we forget kids haven't really had leisures and hobbies that kind of dropped off from parenting. Free play, unstructured free play. These are important, critical developmental pieces for kids. Again, if you look at the research on it, there's value. That's not wasted time. So important. You know, lots of our teachers, uh, obviously, in the Northern Hemisphere are, are finishing the school year and are probably already looking ahead to the beginning of the next school year. And, you know, we're hopeful that pandemic issues will be better than that they have been this past year. And, you know, maybe in many places for students to be going back to school and some after a long time, what should teachers be doing? You know, from what you're hearing from parents, from what you're hearing from children, what would be important things that you'd be telling teachers? Let's start maybe with the young ones, our junior kindergarten to grade four or five. What are some things that you would advise teachers to be doing when kids are coming into the classroom for that first time? In my little preschool, not quite up to the age that you're asking here, but I think it still absolutely applies. You know, we talk about the ABCs being A for acceptance, B for belonging, and C for curriculum. And and if you'll remember back in the day when we didn't have to rush to get that first report card out, again, you have a global audience, but, you know, they changed the rules here in Ontario because it used to be that the first report card was so close to when the kids got in school, they basically came in the door the first day and you had to sit them down and start teaching them. So I would say acceptance belonging, bring your group back together again. You do have the time. When you spend the time to get the group to gel, to hear each other's stories, to get to know each other's personalities, to learn about their pets and what they did in their summer vacation and what did you do in the pandemic and all about me and my favorite color and, you know, what favorite juice, all all that stuff. They need to get to know each other. They need to play together and to do tasks together and to have class meetings or carpet time where you talk together about the year ahead and how are we going to have a good year and to really build up that team, team building, team building, team building. And I know that feels like it's cutting into the delivery of the curriculum, but once you have a class that's really coagulated, gelled up, and those friendships and camaraderie is there, that group will work so well for the rest of the school year, you'll make the rest of that time up. And in a time where I just think that kids need that extra reassurance that they're important, that they're liked, that they're needed, they have a voice, they haven't had that for a really long time, I think they're super thirsty for that right now. So I would put the emphasis on that for the whole month of September. You know, get a little curriculum, you know, I'd say exclusively, but that's where I would say put the focus on. And you know what, Allison, with all of the people that I've had on roundtables or podcasts, 
It doesn't matter whether it's an education academic or a child psychiatrist. The good news is that they're all saying the same thing. They're saying exactly what you said. And, and we knew that. And I think most teachers intuitively know that creating that sense of belonging, we've talked about sense of belonging and how important that is for students. And I think the more we can amplify that message of giving our teachers permission, take the time to create that environment so that students feel attached and connected and they feel like there's a readiness to learn, right? You cannot learn when you're, you know, one of the things that you guys have been really good with is kind of explaining to us the brain science. And if children don't feel safe or they're feeling highly anxious, we know that their brains are not in a place where they can be learning anyways. So that's great, uh, great advice for sure. Yeah, until they really feel settled in, to your point, just because we're a social creature and our drive to survive comes from feeling like we're connected and embedded. And it's sort of like when you do CPR, you know, then they teach you that little airway, breathing, cardio, like there's no sense in pumping on someone's heart if they got a grape stuck in their throat, you know, and it's sort of, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get anywhere. And it's the same thing. You can't really get a child to settle down and be present to a educational curriculum delivery exercise on the chalkboard uh, or the whiteboard now, if they're still wondering, do I have a friend? So the investment of that time is, it's such a beautiful thing. And again, I feel, I, I do, I feel for teachers in the sense that to your point, on some level they know, but they're also asked to do so much, get in the paperwork, get in the reports, you know, if, uh, like there's so many asks of teachers. I know I have someone here that's a friend who's just retiring and she said, it's not really the same profession I entered 20 years ago because of how much paperwork and reporting in her particular school board. Again, it might be different in different places. And every time we learn something new, because we do research on education, they like, now we're going to do whole language. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do open concept. Now we're gonna, it's like, no, what's the flavor of the week? I think sometimes teachers sort of feel a bit jerked around and, and like, oh, now their parents want us to socialize their kids too. Isn't, isn't anyone doing anything? Is it all falling to me? And so I know they're burdened, but I also know that they went into this profession because they love kids and they want to be impactful. And if they can just own that, and I know my mom said, I can't change the whole school board, but I can change my classroom. And uh, so she just took ownership of what she could do. And every year she had her ability to set up that class and get those kids connected and enjoy her teaching year. And, and that's where she kept her focus. And it is, it's possible to make change on that level. I think another advantage that we have now is that, you know, that whole setting of an environment where children are ready to learn from sense of well-being and sense of belonging and identity, et cetera, that was before seen as maybe on the periphery, maybe a, a foundational piece to really get to the learning. But I think what's the advantage that we have now is that those skills are actually identified as skills now. And so for a student to be able to self-regulate, we actually see that as a skill in and of, to, of itself, not just as a means to be able to get to a point where they can learn the curriculum. And so teachers are learning more about that whole process where you go from co-regulation to self-regulation through that developmental process as children. And I think the more we learn that, the more it gives teachers almost permission that they realize that those are skills that are equally as important. And so it's not just that it's fluffy and on the outside, it's actually, these are actually skills that are valued in society, at home, and in the workplace for that matter. Because we're really making a successful human being. 
you know, <laughs> how wonderful to think about it on a whole level and to to say that this isn't something that if I have to stop and co-regulate a child, that isn't like, oh, now I can't get onto my lesson plan. This is like, this is part of the lesson plan. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a, a line in the report card where we could actually give a progress report on that? Well, and there is. That's what's fabulous, right? Almost all, I make broad statements, but most report cards around the world talk about learning skills and actually have for years. But I think now there's more of an acknowledgement that those learning skills or global competencies or whatever the phrase that the educational jurisdiction is using, I think there's just a greater perception of greater value of those skills as opposed to just the marks that are happening uh, on the academic uh, subject areas. Let's talk about older students. What can teachers, high school teachers, middle school teachers, what are some things that they could be doing, Allison, as they start the school year next year? I think the big ask for them is going to be finding out where everybody landed in terms of courses having to build upon prerequisite pieces. You know, so if you're one of those kids who really didn't do anything here anyways, they're opting to not hold kids back. There's parents who want their kids to repeat the year because they checked out so much. And I think that's always been a bit of a, an educator's dilemma. But when do we keep kids with their peer group for that social connection piece? And when do we say mm, we need to have them held back a year? And we and the same with skipping kids ahead. You know, it's it's a big decision to decide to advance a kid to skip a grade for those same reasons too. We're meeting them where they are academically and keeping them in their peer relations. That can be really difficult. So I think trying to figure out how to get a clear sense of assessment of where each of those individual students are. I really like individual learning plans. Like some people think it's a stigma if you're put on a learning plan, an individual learning plan. I think every kid should be on a learning plan. I think you can be in grade eight math and in grade four spelling and just meet the child where they're at. Like, wouldn't that be beautiful if it was individualized to that level? I think one of the pieces of work that are happening is what we're looking at. I work for a digital math company. And one of the things that they're looking at is they've brought in math experts to look at in each grade level, what are the key concepts that are necessary for them to be successful going forward? And instead of trying to go back and cover an entire curriculum and just getting students farther and farther behind, because of course that's cumulative, just going back and taking the temperature with the students, do they have these key concepts? And if they have those key concepts, we're ready to go. And if there's a group or if there's a whole class that they really don't have a couple of the key concepts, let's work on those and then let's get on to the grade level work. And I think that that's a real positive initiative because it gives teachers, of course, they need to know where their students are. You know, the, the idea of learning loss and not getting fixated on that is absolutely the right thing to do. But on the other hand, the teacher needs to have some sense of where the kids are. And so I think that compromise, instead of saying, okay, let's take a look at every single piece of the curriculum in each of the subject areas, it's just what are the key concepts that will ensure that they're successful going into that following grade? I think that's a really wise way of looking at that. And in fact, when I had a lot of parents speaking about school refusal and whatever, I, I, I had made the recommendation, can you speak to the teacher and say, I'm really having trouble with engagement here. Can you narrow this down to the few concepts that I need to make sure? Well, it's kind of like pick your battles, right? But if it's like, if I can get them to understand these four concepts and hand in these three essays, is that enough that we're not drastically going to be behind? So I hope some parents and educators were able to get on board with that as well. 
And I really hope for those teachers that have spent this time working on these curriculums that they get to stay in their same grades. I mean, it's very common here in Ontario to move teachers around so that they're constantly having to reinvent the wheel and come up with their programs and everything. It's like if they spent all year developing their curriculums, let them use them a second year. We need our energies for other things. You know, they need to have a good summer holiday. They need to rest and rejuvenate, as do the students. Everybody just needs to just have a big sigh. You know, we need a big recovery period from the boulder. We just rolled up this hill this year. I think we're all ready for that, Allison. As students, as or children, as adults, I think we're all ready to have a bit of a break and a bit of a press of restart. And bravery, I would say, Jennifer, is the other thing, too. Again, because what we're seeing is, you know, I think the kids get the idea they're going back, they're going back in person. But are they going to go back to choir? Are they going to go back to soccer? Like, I'm getting a lot of kids who, like, are kind of afraid to re-engage. And I really think it's a social hesitancy uh, or it's almost like an amnesia. You know, they forget what they like or they're just not feeling courageous, you know, to go to a tryout or something. So I would say, you know, as parents and teachers to like really invite kids in, really, you know, come on, yeah, you're needed. Go try out, go, go. We need to get them involved. We need to get them involved. Really what I was trying to get at, especially with the older ones, because I've heard the term floated around lately, not just anxiety, but social anxiety, that they have been so out of practice being social that that's something that teachers and middle school teachers and and high school teachers and their support staff and administrators really trying to bring them together and to engage them and to give them opportunities to do baby steps as they begin to have that social interaction, right? They've forgotten what it's like. They have. And for kids, teens, the hardest way to engage is when you just stand around and make small talk. That's like, that would be like adults going to like a wine and cheese at work and not knowing anyone. And you're just like, well, what am I going to talk about? How about those J's? <laughs> um, you know, so it, kids do better when there's a little bit more of a structure and a prescribed rule. So if you want to get kids bonding, give them a task together, get them to do the morning announcements together, get them to go set up the sports equipment for the gym class. Like if you get them doing things together. So if you're on a soccer team, you know what a practice looks like. You're doing the drills, you're following instructions. Now, I think having a little bit of that structure around them is going to make it easier for them to then have the kind of natural engagement and conversations. But just saying, go out and find someone to talk to at recess, ugh, very hard, very hard. We're going to need more structure. That is great advice. Yeah, great, great advice. And, you know, our schools are so good at creating opportunities for students. But to know that that has to be very deliberate going back in September, I think that's wise advice for our leaders as well to be able to engage with staff, to be able to purposefully decide how are we going to orchestrate that? Because it is a bit of an orchestration, right? It is. Yeah. Yes, it's going to have to come from the school leaders, whether that's at the classroom level or school administration. Yeah. Allison, you work with parents and families all the time, and you are one of the people that also work on the other side in education. What can, especially after this 18 months of kind of shared learning between the parent and the teacher, what can we do better? What what should we be thinking about coming out of the pandemic as far as the relationship between parents and teachers and home and school? Anything that you would say that you've really thought, wow, we've done something differently here and we should be hanging on to it and carrying it forward? I think everybody listening to this knows that home and school, uh, working as a team towards a child's education and having a positive relationship where all the stakeholders are aiming towards the same goal. 
in a positive way. I think we know that's sort of the gold standard. But in that arrangement, I often find that the child, the student, the learner seems to be the lowest person on the pecking order. And often it's the teachers and the parents doing all the emailings and having all the chats and whatever. And we really have to remember that it's the child needs to be the leader of they are responsible for their education. The teachers and the parents are supports to their primary goal and an aspirational goal to be a learner. And I think when we get over-invested in a helper, we can overtake the child and that can be really discouraging. So I think we could do better there. That is such an interesting point. And I think we all need to be thinking about that, right? And how do we have those conversations with parents that we frame it that way, that the child will be the leader in this and you and I will play support roles and start that relationship right at the beginning with that type of a context. That's a really good strategy, Allison. Yeah, I think kids feel like when there's exchanges going on and they're not included in it, that just feels like talking behind their back. Uh, it's just, you know, why, why are you guys having all these conversations about me and you're not even inviting me? And it's also giving the child permission to walk away and say, okay, well, they're going to do whatever and I'll just continue doing my thing. And, and in the end, kids, then when they give up that responsibility or we take the responsibility from them, then we also become the target of blame. You know, you're the reason why, you know, I didn't do well. In fact, it's interesting. Do you know, students still feel when they get bad marks, they still believe it's because the teacher didn't like me. They, they have not connected the dots between if I work harder, my mark goes up. They, they still bring it to this personal level. And so um, when we get too involved, then that interpersonal piece ends up becoming a, an alibi, an excuse, an out for poor performance. You know, it's your fault. You did it. Uh, you're on my back. That's why I'm not studying. So I think we have to be mindful of how we can be discouraging to our kids in the ways that we are attempting to help. You know, we're, we're un, unwittingly. Yeah, with the best of intentions. Yeah, best of intentions at backfire. Setting it up from the beginning on the wrong trajectory. But thinking about that right from the beginning. Any, anything else, Allison? That well, so the the positive that I saw, and this is where I'm saying the parents were saying that teachers were so extraordinary. Teachers were literally like on the phone calling these students. Hi, how are you? Are you doing okay? And yes, they were asking about their homework and so, but they were just they were like, how are you? There was this this very you know of course because we were concerned about the mental health. Are you holding up? What's going on? What are you doing? How are you faring? That personal piece really came out in the pandemic. And that I hope we continue. How nice to just get a, a call to say, I'm thinking of you, to say you're important to me, that I care about you. That I hope continues. Wonderful. Wonderful. Let's take next steps, Allison. In the field of family therapy, what are you seeing? What are new trends that are coming out as far as kinds of things that you're seeing, that you're trying to address, different ways of addressing them? And is there any connection to education or schooling that we should know about? Are there things that you're seeing on the horizon that educators should just be aware of? Well, like I said, I think it's pretty shocking news when we find how many kids place too much importance on the pressure that comes with performing academically for their parents. That I can't understate that enough. You know, when we look at the uh, suicide rates um, and when we look at the backstory of these kids, they tend to be uh, kids that are actually incredibly high achievers. And so, you know, when you're getting 98 and then your mark drops to 87 and you commit suicide, it, like this ridiculous, it's heart-wrenching. Again, not that all these kids leave suicide notes to explain things, but there's just some patterns and the research is showing these high-achieving kids are really at risk, really at risk. 
So what can we do about that, Allison? What do we do? Is that is that a societal issue that we need to be tackling? Do we need to be communicating better with children? Do we need to be communicating better with adults? What can we do about that? It is a societal issue from a very young age, sort of send quiet little messages about sort of good, better, best, and how we rank people and what success looks like. And, you know, you know, the the accolades that we give when they get the A's, you know, we're very praise based. And it's just very easy for a child to tie their worth as a person to their performance. And the only kind of performance they really do, or the number one performance is learning is schooling. So changing some of that early messaging, uh, helping our kids be appreciated for who they are, for being a human being, not a human doing, not a human striving, <laughs> letting life be a little bit more well, well-rounded for them, you know, and to believe that there's a place on this planet for all people and they'll find their passion, they'll find their way, they'll find their contribution to the world, uh, you know, as they learn rather than you got to get a PhD if you want to get the top role. It's just some of that scarcity messaging of what it takes, what, you know, what the journey of being a human is, is just a little bit skewed. I think one of the things that we try to do in schools is to make sure that there's a real range of opportunities for students to get engaged in many different ways that allow them to be able to learn and grow and demonstrate different kinds of things that interest them. And then how do we make sure that parents have an opportunity to come and see all the wonderful things that they're doing? And, you know, the good news with where we've got to with technology is that teachers have had to, some were already very ready to be able to communicate through video communication before. And, you know, we had many, many that literally turned to that. And maybe now that those types that, you know, the use of technology to be able to highlight things that are happening in the classroom, et cetera. Maybe that will be a little bit easier to make sure that both on the family side and on the schooling side, that we truly, in our language, demonstrate that we value what kids bring to the table, whatever that is. And it's why we need to make sure that we don't drop programs like music and art. We're losing funding for those things. You know, schools don't have bands anymore. There's certain elements that are not being given the priority. You know, you don't get engaged and interested if you don't have exposure. What's next for you, Allison? You've done some incredible work. You've written books and you are very present in media and blogs. And of course, you've got your clinical practice that helps many, many families. What's next for you? Well, I need to get all my workshops online, you know, because we haven't been able to meet in person. So I have been doing some webinars, but I, I need to really pull out my, I had something called my boot camp. <laughs> I don't know if I would call it that in the future, but, you know, really a parenting class that goes through the entire child guidance system. I'd love to have the time to get that online for parents to, to study at their own pace so that it's more readily available for busy parents to do at their own time and pace. So that's a big goal for me this year. And to write another book, you know, I have my three books out there, but I've had parents that have, you know, started with me when their kids were at some of my nursery schools. And now, of course, their kids are teenagers and they're, where's your teen book? You haven't written a book about teens. And of course, it's a real game changer. A lot of these tools do expire. And uh, it's it's a, (laughs) sorry, parents, I know it's so frustrating just when you think you got something figured out and then they're at a different developmental stage and you've got to start all over again as a newbie. But, you know, you never stop parenting. You never do. My kids are now in their mid-20s and I'm still parenting. It looks very different, but um, so yeah, so I'd love to get another book out about parenting teens. And you know what, Allison, when you think of the conversation that we've had today, 
you know, there was often I was saying, well, what do you do with young children and what do you do with the adolescents? And it is true. I mean, it's developmental stages and and we have to be conscious of where is that child and what are the strategies that work best for that age of child. I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're thinking of moving digitally your parenting courses because that's where we get access, right? What's really challenging with mental health services, with family therapy, et cetera, is that there's just a finite number of people that are able to offer those kinds of services. And yet the need for those services is expanding exponentially. And so when those kinds of courses that, you know, you give your heart and soul in Allison to creating them, when they get to be digital and parents can be watching them and deciding, you know, when are you going to do module number two, because I've got to fit that into my day, et cetera. Just the ability to reach and to guide so many more parents. That is such a service to society, Allison. Well, thank you. You know, back in the day when my grandparents were teaching parenting classes, a program was very typically 12 weeks long. You couldn't get a parent to sign up for 12 weeks of an in-person anything now. They'd think you were crazy. 12 weeks became eight, became six, became four. And I think now you just can't get the material out in four weeks. There's too much to ingest. So now that it's going online, I think that actually is more likely to be able to be robust learning because to your point, we can respect the busyness of family life and they can have that time to ingest and do the practice. And then it's very common in these online formats that when you buy the curriculum, you also sign up for live coaching or group coaching so that you still get community, you still get access to ask your questions. So I think there's some real benefits to the platform for parent education for sure. I'm sure there's all sorts of educators that would appreciate that guidance as well. So that's the neat thing with these, you know, with the podcast that I'm doing, although the intended audience is educators, I get parents coming on and academics coming on and, you know, all sorts of uh, policy people and people from uh, not-for-profits that come in and just want to have a sense of what we're talking about in education. And I think it's the reverse, you know, you'll be setting up something that's for parents, you know, a parenting session, but there'll be all sorts of educators and healthcare workers and all sorts of people that are thinking of that from their professional lens and not just their parenting lens. I hope so. I hope so. You've inspired me to giddy up and get going on it now. <laughs> well, I look forward to it, Allison. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving your time to help us as educators get better at what we do with children. Oh, thank you, Jennifer, for having me on. And as I say to all the educators listening, you are my heroes. I so truly appreciate you before the pandemic, certainly during the pandemic. And I hope you have a great rest and a great year ahead. Thanks to Allison for joining our podcast today and for sharing her insights into supporting children's mental health and well-being. As educators, we have much to learn from Allison and her fellow parenting experts. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in another opportunity to hear from Allison. At a recent roundtable, Allison joined us as a panelist alongside two other parenting experts to discuss children's well-being from the parent's perspective. This roundtable is available on the Knowledgehook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening to our first season. It's been a privilege hearing from a diverse group of experts across a variety of topics connected to education. Next season, our themes will be learning, equity, and well-being. We'll be back at the end of August with a conversation featuring Pedro Noguera, 
Dean of the Rossi School of Education, University of Southern California. Have a great summer. See you soon. Thank you.